Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around finding and defining purpose in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu. I'm coming to you from Accra this week. It's still so hot, but I'm loving it. At least I can't complain. And in my um, typical endless summer lifestyle, I am preparing for my summer sojourn back to the U.S. And I hear the weather is quite nice in New York, so I'm looking forward to that. And likewise, I am looking forward to my conversation with my guest for today, who is an entrepreneur in the public interest. He spent the last few years as the CEO of Flutterwave, a business building payments, technology, and infrastructure connecting Africa to the global economy. He led the company to become one of the fastest growing payments technology businesses of all time, processing over $2 billion across over 50 million transactions. A serious techpreneur, prior to Flutterwave, he co-founded Andela, which is Africa's largest engineering organization with over a thousand software engineers. And Dela's investors include Mark Zuckerberg and Google Ventures, among others. He now leads the Fund for Africa's Future, where he spends time helping founders, philanthropists, and investors from around the world understand how to build fast-growing and impactful technology businesses in Africa. Ianolua Abueji. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Wow, I'm so happy to have you here. Yeah. So let's get started. Let's get right in. Mm-hmm. Please tell us more about where you're from, where mm-hmm. you're local, and what is your craft. Okay, I don't know how granular you want me to get with that, but basically, I'm from I'm from Nigeria, and thankfully, I'm local here in Nigeria. Okay, just to give you a sense of um, where I um, I grew I grew up. I was born here in Lagos, not very far from where I'm seated right now in Yaba, where my offices are. But, you know, my family is actually from the north central in Kwara. We're a bit of a lost uh, lost tribe of, of Lagos. <laughs> okay. um, we're Yoruba, but we're from the Ilori Emirates. So it's an interesting mm. mix. But my grandfather, apparently the law says, walked over to Lagos and we settled here three generations now, my grandfather, my father, and and now myself. So that's where I'm local now. Okay. And what would you describe as your craft? That's an interesting question. I would say what I'm really, really good at, which is what I imagine it means to have a craft, is Mm -hmm. building businesses that make tons of money and tons of impact. And that's the, the zero to one stages of that. You know, you identify an incredible problem, you basically with far more courage than smarts attempt to solve it. And then ultimately you make it an attractive opportunity for others to follow, to attempt to do the same thing. And I've been lucky enough to do that in the education space with Andela, the education to employment, as we like to call it, space. Mm -hmm. And then I did again with the fintech and payment space with Flutterwave. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now trying to do it again with investment space with future Africa. But ultimately, the goals are the same. It's really just identifying a, a challenge, identifying solutions to that challenge, market-driven solutions to that challenge, and, and deploying those solutions for meaning and for profit. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think prepared you to be the problem solver that you are? That's a great question. I, I, you know, it's it's been a mix of things. So I think, um, you know, first of all, I grew up. My parents actually, while my father did work in private sector, he he spent quite a bit of his time in church, right? Mm-hmm. And and church is kind of the center of people's lives from the point of view of they bring all their problems to God and sometimes via their pastor. <laughs> So mm-hmm. I, I ended up listening to a lot of people come to my father and listening to how my father tried to solve those problems. But as I grew older, particularly my dad's work in private sector, we moved to the Niger Delta when I was nine. And my father became responsible for managing very froth relationships with the Niger Delta community right in the middle of the Niger Delta militancy. And he commanded quite a bit of respect from militants because he would always find a way to solve these problems. But I would say, you know, as I began to mature, um, I, I started to see that, you know, my, my mind worked slightly differently from uh, most people in the sense that, you know, I was happy to take a problem, uh, complain loudly about it, but not just stop at that. <laughs> I was happy mm-hmm. to propose a couple solutions to solving the problem in the hopes that whoever was going to be in charge of that would be able to support, to help us out. And it mostly worked through multiple different iterations. It mostly worked. So I would say we spent quite a bit of time, for example, when I was in school, thinking carefully about how do you solve problems in that we were, we were seeing uh, live and direct in the education space. You had a group of people who had access to questions, papers, past question papers, and people who didn't. And then we had to create a marketplace to help everybody get access to those questions. And, you know, even when I was in boarding school, you know, lots of people wanted access to contraband at the time provisions, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And and my job was to figure out how to leverage a market-driven solution to get people access to these limited materials at the right price, which was often very exorbitant. Um, so I think, I think, you know, generally speaking, I just kind of over time built this muscle around providing market-driven solutions to multiple different kinds of problems. And when I got to Waterloo, however, I think that was the first time that I was really taught about entrepreneurship in a very different kind of way. Because Waterloo had a program called Velocity, which prioritized um, heavily entrepreneurial practice in the education that we were receiving. And so we had an opportunity to see other people um, make it really big. And then um, I would say, you know, that combined with a passion for Africa, even when I went to university in Canada, made this a natural birth for me and my entrepreneurial practice. Because realistically, you know, what can you sell to to Africans except solutions to problems? Mm, yeah. <laughs> or dreams of another something. I just uh, kind of look at where we are now, and I guess it is a problem that we're solving, but it, it's not always the most pressing problem that the market is providing for sometimes. Well, I think sometimes you sometimes will have people who want to sell aspirations and dreams, like you yeah. said. Mm-hmm. But I find that they don't end up becoming lasting businesses, right? The moment the, mm-hmm. the initial wear of uh, the high of being considered or perceived as something, Whereas uh, people do still want to go back to real solutions 
So their deepest problems, you know, making more True. money, you know, earning a living, sending their child to school and getting them a decent education, you know, True. helping that that mother or father or uncle up there is get through that really bad ailment. That's where people's money really goes, right? <laughs> I mean, at the at the base of it, yes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, survival and, and care for others, most definitely. So let me ask you this. You you spoke a little bit about living in Canada and you're you're living in the Niger Delta and what have you. So let me ask you, and I kind of it probably kind of dovetails with your passion is why the where? Why have you chosen the wares of your life to date? Well, most times I didn't get to choose them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I don't think I had much input into the decision to move to the Niger Delta. <laughs> okay. right. Neither, right, neither, right, right. Neither did I have much to do with Canada, to be very frank, because I had expected to end up in the U.S. Oh, okay. Um, but, um, but, you know, I find myself where I find myself, and I try to make the best of it. Um, okay. and, and so I'm not as deliberate as most people might imagine about the wares of my life. I just take the punches as they roll and come, you know. Interesting. But I do recognize the privilege I have in being able to make a difference wherever I am. And, and it's something that really helps me kind of maintain my mindset, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, so long as the object is achieved, so to speak, you know, I'm a bit more flexible on the path. You know, mm. from that perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. But you made a deliberate decision to move back to Nigeria, right? Somewhat. Somewhat. <laughs> oh, so tell us that story. So tell. So tell us, by the way, how well, did you? Okay, how did you so, that? Yeah. So you know, after Flutter Wave, you know, I imagined I would take some time off and go away for a while, um, or maybe forever. I, I actually was, you know, after Flutter Wave, I, I actually planned to move to the U.S. And lived there for a couple of years. I just married an American wife <laughs> and mm-hmm. I had a two-year-old. And my plan was to try and live a normal life as much as I could, right? Okay. But, okay. you know, there were just so many barriers to entrepreneurs getting into venture in, Black entrepreneurs getting into venture in the Valley where mm-hmm. chosen to settle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just really hard. It's not as simple as, as people like to make it seem. <laughs> that I know. Um, to be yeah. an entrepreneur yeah. and to hope to be on the other side of the table in the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I also had to do a frank evaluation of where I had the means and the respect of both entrepreneurs and a certain kind of investor class. And that was going to be in Africa. But I think the nail that eventually hit the head was when Trump basically said that Nigerians weren't going to be allowed to become permanent residents in the U.S., I think it was an executive order or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just, all of a sudden, I just grew up that I was giving these Americans so much power over my life. (laughs) I couldn't possibly Mm -hmm. be comfortable um, Mm -hmm. uh, remaining in America. So I packed my bags and my family and moved back to Lagos, where I have a bit more control, despite how mad it is. Right. And, you know, that's that's one of the things that I often like to kind of discuss is what the immigration challenges are when you're thinking about living abroad. And, and there you have it. You know, you you were building a career, built companies, were a great contributor to the global economy. And then you have this policy that kind of shuffles your world around. And it sounds like for the good because you're solving problems for the good in your career and you're, you're living abroad. What were some of the immigration challenges that you may have dealt with, if any? 
Well, I mean, they weren't really challenges. I think I just, um, okay. I mean, not not from the point of view of I, I had trouble staying. I could have perhaps mm-hmm. found a way to stay, but I just, for me, I think the bigger challenges were more cultural for mm-hmm. me, right? I just couldn't mm-hmm. get used to the way Black people in America were treated. I think I just had trouble with that idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it wasn't something that registered for me until I lived in America. Because I'd been in America in and out, but I was there more or less as a guest. You know, I was really in Africa doing work and then right. headquartering my company in the U.S. But I think I really got to see up close when I lived there for a year what it meant to live in America. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, police stops and, uh, you know, all that stuff. And I was, you know, trouble with the bank accounts, people not believing you earned money you owned, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I just felt like, you know, it wasn't for me. Having come from a, from a country where Black people are dominant and in power and in control, it just wasn't for me. So <laughs> I was never fully comfortable there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That speaks volumes. Speaks volumes. So I think we, we may have hopscotched a little bit about the actual work that you do, the, the companies that you've been involved with. I, I mentioned them in the in the intro. Tell us more about Flutterwave, because that's been in the news lately or late or earlier this year. Big announcements. Yeah. Tell us about how, how you how you came to that space and how you built that business. Yeah. So um, with Flutterwave, the big idea with Flutterwave was we wanted to build a platform that would connect Africans and Africa itself to the global economy. And I really recognized that, you know, there were, there were monumental challenges to the interaction, the economic interaction between Africa and the rest of the world which directly contributed to our very low contribution to global GDP, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we're the, one of the only continents in the world where if you wanted to wire money, you still had to work with a correspondent bank that was domiciled elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, many global services really couldn't fully understand how to accept payments in Africa and move them to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. There, there are so many challenges around some of these payments issues. And I saw them firsthand when I was at Flutterwave and Della even before then. And I recognized mm-hmm. that, you know, even if we succeeded in developing talent, as was our mission at Flutter, at Andela, we would the talent would have a hard time being able to earn from the rest of the world if we didn't fix this payments problem. And so yeah. that was that was what the mission was um, at Flutterwave was to, you know, actually make Africa and Africans the participants in the global economy by by fixing the the ability to send and receive payments around the world. Got it. Got it. And you mentioned that that was a bit of a solution for the company that you had already founded. Andela. So tell us more about that. Like, so how you, how you came up with that concept and how that evolved in the, I guess it's the ed tech. So FinTech and ed tech <laughs> in the ed tech space. Yeah. So when, when I spent quite a bit of time in the ed tech space, in fact, you know, I had done two failed companies in the ed tech space before Andela. One was called booknetter.com, um, which was, you know, evolved from providing LMSs to universities to providing a platform for students to 
share past questions and answer them in a social learning setting and mm -hmm. um, to eventually becoming an LMS for professors who wanted to teach courses independent of universities. Um, we went through quite a bit of metamorphosis, booknero.com, and then when I saw it wasn't working, I decided to return back home and try my hands at building a company in Nigeria where I felt I had a better network and I understood, you know, the, what was going on, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, when I got back to Nigeria, I tried my hands at helping universities to be able to accept credentials from other universities for courses they didn't have the required expertise or uh, teaching expertise in. And that, that didn't go so well either, right? The, the regulator blocked it mm -hmm. and insisted every school must have their professors not offer the course. Now, I think at the end of the day, when the idea for Andela came through from Jeremy, who was my co-founder and still the CEO, my mindset was really simple. It was really one of, look, we have an opportunity to build something that could provide jobs, impact people's lives. So why don't we give it a shot? And that was the idea. So what we do at, at Andela, very simply, at least what we did at the time, was we identified some of the smartest young people on the continent. We put them through a very intensive training program for six months, and then we deployed them to global technology companies that needed the talent. So that was what we did at Andela. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, a bit of a, an HR for the tech space in a way like a recruiter slash um, trainer recruiter. Yeah, I would say trainer slash recruiter. Maybe, maybe there's some HR involved, but definitely mm -hmm. not intentional. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think what we did really well was to be kind of like a HR recruiter for the space, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, identify talent for the space, natural talent, train mm -hmm. them up, brush them up mm -hmm. in the concepts, and then, you know, basically uh, build them into world-class talents that can work anywhere in the world. And, and a lot of our talents have proven themselves to be world-class all over the world. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice, nice. So you train these folks, they're world-class across the world, but they couldn't get paid. And so, and so then you had to figure out how do we do this where that we can make sure that people get paid. And so the transition from going from Mandela to, to Flutterwave, was it seamless? Were you doing both at the same time? How were you managing your time and yourself as an entrepreneur at the time? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question, Florence. So really what happened for me was, you know, I identified the problem of Flutterwave while I was at Andela, but at Andela, I was, I was going to leave that year anyway. Oh, okay. Um, the question was whether I was going to go to business school or whether I was going to go start a new company. Um, mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I decided to start a new company or, or to work with Benga and Leke, who were at the helm of that new company, right? Mm -hmm. My co-founders at, at, at Flutterwave. So, I mean, what really happened was when I looked at the way the world was shaping up and this challenge in particular was threatening the livelihoods of many of the people that we had trained, I felt like it was something that if we didn't solve it, you wouldn't really have an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm, uh, right. So I was very motivated to solve this problem. As you know, that was my my mindset. 
And that, that was what led me to taking the Flutterwave option. But, you know, I did some part-time consulting work. I also invested in Flutterwave while I was waiting. Okay. And then, you know, when my last day came, I think I, I literally that day was on a plane to Arkansas to go work on the new on the new company. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was very seamless from one to the other. Yeah. The work continued. I didn't get it right. Yeah. 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 So what were what has been your most rewarding experience in the Flutterwave? Because because I think you decided to retire from the Flutterwave experience so to speak well right? yeah like, well I, I i was trying to retire now i'm working on something else unfortunately <laughs> oh, fortunately. <laughs> uh, right. but that was my impression i think Flutterwave was it was a very difficult problem to solve not okay. not least because of the characters involved but also i think because of the industry finance industry in africa is an amazing amazing industry um <laughs> And I don't, I don't mean that that lightly. I, it's just a very funny and amazing industry. So that's just the way it is. Sure. Um, it was very stressful to operate in. It's highly regulated. Mm -hmm. There's so much you can do to create trouble for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something we had to think about a lot. Yeah. So how did you how did you go about fundraising for for the endeavor? So you you were an investor initially. And you had this idea that obviously, you know, finance is always something that people are looking at and want to get into. But given that you were mentioning that it's highly regulated and Flutterwave is available in many countries, and obviously that means a lot of compliance in a lot of jurisdictions. So when you're fundraising for it and looking for investors, how did that play into finding fundraisers and into operationalizing as well? Well, on the one hand, there are a lot of practical challenges with fundraising because you got to make sure your eyes are dotted and your eyes, um, your eyes are, are dotted and your T's are crossed, mm -hmm. and and you also are responsible to the regulator because you're a public interest company. When you're that heavily regulated, it actually yes. doesn't matter about what your shareholders think. So you mm -hmm. wanted to make sure you were operating in full compliance, so your shareholders wouldn't be, you know, grifted if you decided to do something silly. But at the same time, to be very honest, I would say the, the reality of the space as well was that there was a lot of educating that you had to do, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. people, it was a fairly new space. People didn't really understand what was going on. So much is going on and people don't really get it. So, yeah. so it, sometimes it's, it can be a, a nightmare to manage, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you don't know what yeah. it's doing. Um, and you know, money money can be funny. That's very definitely very, <laughs> very, extremely funny. Extremely yeah, funny, yeah, yeah. Money can be funny. So speaking of funny, or just speaking, let me ask you what you have found to be some local speak that you've picked up along the way. I mean, whenever people ask you, you know, how is it going or hello, you know, I think the response I really like to give is, you know, you know, how are you? Oh, thank God. Oh, um, thank God. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's actually, you know, it's so funny across Nigerian cultures. That's like a very common response. So, you know, like, uh, um, yes. you yes. know, but with the O at the end too, you know. <laughs> Thank God, O. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, the O. Exactly. That would be my own. That would be my own. My own selection. Local, of local speak. speak. Yeah. I I've heard it, so I can uh, I can relate most definitely. 
Most definitely. Okay. So let's fast forward or forward to the present and talk about the Future Africa Fund. Yeah. Let's talk about how you came to, because it feels like it's a bit of a, it's a VC fund, but it yeah. feels like it's a bit of a, it has a little bit of an impact slash, I guess a kind of a, a VC fund with the every man kind of quality is kind of how I would describe it. How would you describe it? And how, how did you and your team get together to build this? Yeah. So when we were thinking about the fund, you know, for us, it was really about high impact and high returns. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. For us, it's high impact, high returns, right? So, you know, the way we think about the world is that it's only by solving the biggest problems that you can create the biggest opportunities, right? Right. And those are the opportunities that end up becoming huge companies. Mm-hmm. That's kind of our mindset, you know, okay. across the board. Okay. So how do you determine impact? Um, for us, it's really a function of the problems you're solving and what kind of reach the solutions that you put forward can have. Okay. Um, so, you know, the more fundamental the problem and the more people that it impacts, then the bigger the, the need as well as the more potential the solution has to create both impact and profits. We tend to think of both along the same lines. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, Mm-hmm. But when you're so I find this because a lot of my background and experience has been dealing with, you know, the foundation world and the development world. And they use yeah. the word impact yeah. quite a bit. And and the idea of, of being able to measure it and, and putting it in context is, is often just kind of dangling there. And so when you say high impact, um, high profit, in my mind, to some extent, there are sectors that lend themselves to that. So you're definitely solving for specific problems. But then it also going back to, well, what exactly is the context in which you are defining it? As you mentioned, there are different ways of looking at it. So give me an example of, you know, one of your recent companies and how you're looking at it through that lens. One of the things that I'm very passionate about is um, small business, right? Mm-hmm. And and the modern small business is it has a communication explosion. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's so many platforms on which their customers want to be able to talk to them. Mm-hmm. WeChat, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, Telegram, you know, you name it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I think the, the thought process is, look, how can we aggregate all this stuff in one place so that we can respond deliberately to all this communication that's coming to us mm-hmm. from all sides? That's a huge problem for retailers. Like they're probably missing out on, you know, 20% of sales by simply not being able to respond quickly enough. Plus, there's an opportunity to create jobs for somebody, a customer rep, to actually go and look at all this stuff, right? In a very mm-hmm. efficient way and deal with the tickets very quickly. Mm-hmm. So we founded this business called Ongear, which basically does precisely that, right? There's another business we funded the other day called Lamy. And Lamy yeah. basically, Lamy, L-A-M-I. And they, they help, you know, insurers to leverage artificial intelligence to provide better services to the insured, right? So yeah. typically it's very difficult for you to, you know, when when you're insured, you've paid your premium and you have a claim, you know, the way that claim is managed, right, is often a disgrace and it 
reduces people's trust in insurance, yeah. which is yeah. absolutely critical, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we LAMI basically makes insurance companies respond to claims a lot faster and better, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there are also a bunch of other other companies that you know that that we've that we've spoken to. There's a company that we backed recently that that basically helps prevent counterfeit drugs by building supply chains for drugs, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, to ensure that it's possible for you to tra trace and retrace um, where drugs are coming from, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, awesome. there's a digital bank for African immigrants that we backed that basically helps with remittances and, you know, um, mortgage payments and all these other mm -hmm. stuff that your typical banks don't care about. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So when you're looking at these small businesses, so these are, again, kind of referencing the idea of the Everyman Fund. So these are small investments that you're making, right? Yeah. And so you you are the angel, so to speak. Yeah. And so what, what kind of metrics are you expecting in terms of returns for these this size of business? Well, yeah, if you use the Flutterwave example, which was okay. a five-year hold period, you know, when we invested okay. in 2000 and. 2016, you know, we invested about $150,000 and mm -hmm. we made, we made hundred times our money. Yeah. So okay. that just gives you a sense of how, um, right. The know, scale of the potential upside exactly. of, of exactly. the solution. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So tell us about the, the model. Tell us more about the model. Yeah. So I think for us, it's a combination of two things. One is, how can we support, enable African companies that are building solutions to our many challenges, right? But on the other side of it, how do we bring more Africans into venture as an asset class? You know, in other parts of the world, you know, people are happy to offer you stocks. You know, people are happy to mm -hmm. offer you bonds to some certain extent, but then they treat, you know, venture and hedge funds as, kind of, you know, secret, they're more secretive asset classes, right? Yeah. People don't want mm -hmm. other to those opportunities, exactly. The elite kind of keep those to themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think for us, the vantage point we're taking is what does the world look like if venture is not um, um, an elite, is, it's not reserved for an elite, for the elite, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually like, you know, the average accredited investor can invest in venture. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of more or less where we were taking it from. Um, and so we have tons of companies that are excited about working with us from that from that point of view. Um, and also individuals. We have about 270 members that are excited to work with us from that vantage point. Okay. And so how are you finding your members? What's their demographic? Where are they coming from? We have kind of four major demographics. You know, one demographic is um, other people who work in tech, right? Another demographic is other investors in tech who want to see our deal flow. Another demographic is, you know, people who made money in other industries but are looking at tech now as the future want to commit some of their money into tech, right? Mm -hmm. As angel investors. And then I'll say the final group, they're typically high net worth individuals or families that want to invest in tech. Mm -hmm. Got so it. Those are like the four groups. Got it. 
Do you see an opportunity potentially for institutional investors at some point in the fund? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have pathways for institutional investors. Okay. Um, and I imagine that we will manage a family of funds. So there will be funds, even thematic funds, dedicated to specific mm. domain areas. Um, okay. So, I mean, we do have all of that um, as okay. part of our offering. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, so I'll add all, a lot of that information in the show notes so people know how to become a member if they're interested yeah. and more information about, about the fund in general. So I want to ask you a little bit more about mindset. Mm-hmm. What is your mindset hack? So this is something that you know of, something that you practice. Like, how do you get your mind hacked? I mean, for me, very simple, right? I look at um, challenges as opportunities. Oh, okay. You know, I just automatically see a challenge, and in my mind, it's just here's a fantastic opportunity mm-hmm. <laughs> to build something, to solve a problem, uh, to create impact. That numbs challenges, you know? Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. It keeps right. me very optimistic, right? So, sure. you know, I, sure. Sure, sure. that's my mind hack. Okay, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So tell us something that, so I'd like to get a bit of a sense of who you are outside of all this work. So we've talked about all the work and you've been very business mm-hmm. focused. But you're, yeah. you're not even to midlife yet. <laughs> 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 so what kinds of things occupy you outside of work? I mean, a lot of my life outside of work, I typically spend with policy politics, advocacy, mm. and and philanthropy, quite mm-hmm. frankly. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I spend most of my time out of work. So whether that's church or it's just serving the community, yeah. that's, that's what I spend quite a bit of my time outside of work doing. Yeah. So, so you, I had a question for you as well that is somewhat along mm-hmm. that lines, but it kind of deals with work. And it is, you know, when I look at being in Africa and most of the develop, developing world, I see infrastructure as the most significant challenge. And so how do you see tech and your role as a tech VC potentially really solving for some of the major infrastructure challenges that we have? You know, maybe it is just this other thing that is that is part of what you, you do on the outside of the, the VC, but, but I, I can't help but always thinking, okay, you know, so a huge part of our problems are either the logistics around providing for infrastructure, the supply chain, all those things. So how do you potentially see tech intersecting with solutions on the infrastructure side? I mean, I see tech across, across all, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Got it. I see it everywhere because if you think about the the continent, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What you want to do what you realize is that we won't be able to get to scale on solutions that matter without technology. Say you you take a look at the mobile phone and how it's proliferated, you know, it literally, you know, if you had tried to do this with fixed line cables and all that stuff, it wouldn't work. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right, right. We'd still be, you know, missing each other and having to wait at some specific point to make a call. Mm Got so you it. need, yeah. So you need, um, you you need technology to help scale the solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the general ethos: is in any piece of the puzzle, there there is a tech solution that will help move it forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. So, what are you a listener? Are you a watcher? Or are you a reader? 
Oh, that's a good question. I like to read. I think I'm more of a reader. Okay. So what are some of your, mm. your favorite reads? I like to read historical documents or mm. autobiographies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I love historical texts quite a lot. Okay. Especially about pe- real people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to understand what their time was like, especially, mm-hmm. I mean, now I'm very, very stuck on texts and characters from the 1820s, right? Oh, okay. Um, why? 18, why is that uh-huh. um, I think that's where kind of that's the cycle of life where we are right now, <laughs> especially uh-huh. in Nigeria. It's kind of uh-huh. like you know, it's like right before the Gilded Age. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I see it. Interesting. Interesting. So, what are some of the things that you're reading in particular? So, I've spent quite a bit of time reading the house that Morgan built. Mm. That's one of the books mm-hmm. that huge yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that does take a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. That takes a lot of time. And then I mean in my fiction I have read uh Come Back to Gatsby and just try to understand more mm. what's going on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. In um, that whole that self exploration yeah, but... and understanding phase of life. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so, yeah. More for the era than, than for the time, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to understand what, yeah, I'm not really big. Um, I just wanted to understand more about the era, you know, what's. Uh huh. Um, uh-huh. uh-huh. Got it. Um, so it's like you took a, a 200 year flashback to kind of get a sense of. Yeah. How I mean, you know, it is there's definitely the sense of history will always repeat itself. And yeah, you know, we at the core of humanity, we operate the same, but we fashion new tools. And so that is that's what changes. What changes is the tools that we use, but at our core, yeah. we generally behave the same until we decide yeah. not to. And so yeah. Yeah. that's that's a key piece of you know who we are now. So so do you do yeah. you see us deciding to act in a different way in the next twenty years? Maybe not. You know, human beings are lemons in that way. You know, <laughs> repeat the same mistakes again and again. But hey, I'm I'm not I'm probably not the only one reading this book, so I'm not gonna pat myself on the back and believe that I'm the only one. So yeah, giving that uh, we'll see we'll see what happens. Right. Maybe but I'm true. but I'm reading. Uh, I mean, I can tell you um, one of the other books I'm reading simultaneously is a book called American Disruptor um, okay. about uh-huh. Leland, who is somebody uh, I've started to learn quite a bit about. Interesting guy. You said Norman uh, Lear. Leland Stanford. Oh, right. okay. Yeah, yeah. I should have known that. I went there. Very, <laughs> oh, you went? Okay, awesome. Well, I mean, the man your school's named after is a scandal. And I'm always surprised that people never pick up on it. But yeah, yeah, it's true. Absolutely scandalous <laughs> individual. Um, yes, most definitely. <laughs> well, you know, um, people don't pick up on a lot of things that serve them, right? You know, it serves to have these idolized visions of people and ways of life so that it kind of preserves the status quo in a lot of situations. And it allows for, you know, the advancement of the power structure as it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I mean the the thing about his story in particular is like mm-hmm. I don't think if people imagine say in a country like Nigeria, for example, a worthy quote unquote 
savior or disruptor for the Nigerian state, they would be thinking of him because his his story is not very innocent. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, this guy, mm-hmm. this guy raided the public treasury to build a transcontinental railroad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. They weren't called Robert Barron for nothing. They were not called Robert Barron for nothing. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, for him to have the kind of influence and be remembered kind of the way we remember him today, you know, it says a lot about some of our preconceived notions about um, yeah, it's just yeah, he, <laughs> the human mind utterly intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, it's been great getting to know you, getting to meet you, getting to talk a little bit about this business that we're in and changing the world. Do you have any last words to share with our listeners for today? I mean, generally speaking, I think it's just, it's an interesting time in the world right now. And yeah. and the world is looking for people who see challenges as opportunities. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Take take a page out of your mindset hat, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. For sure. I like that. I like that. You know, I never, I never ask my guests this, but I want to ask you, do you have any questions for me? Oh, that's, I actually don't. Not now. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll send you an email if I do later. Yeah. No problem. No problem. No problem. All right, listeners. This has been another episode of Global Citizens. Thanks so much for joining us. You can always catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode at www.globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Apple, Amazon, Verbal, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us and tell a friend and subscribe and share. That's always very helpful. Our show notes are always really rich and we will have rich show notes this week as well. So until next time, bye for now.